0: That big sound, that big music, Uh, Courtney Younger, engineer, she picks the music, is uh, kind of a sign that the program has begun. So this is Ed Stetzer Live. I'm Ed Stetzer. I serve as the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. I serve as a dean and professor at Wheaton College. And, but for our purposes, this and every Saturday at this time, I am your host for Ed Stetzer Live. And happy to have this conversation with you, a conversation that is uh, meaningful and matters to many of us. And today, our guest is actually Dr. George Yancey. He's a professor um, at the Institute for the Studies of Religion and Sociology at Baylor University. He's published several books, and we're going to talk specifically today about his book, Beyond Racial Gridlock, Transcending Racial Barriers and Beyond Racial Division. It's a book examining the use of um, collaborative conversations to reduce racial intentions. And so excited to have George Yancey uh, on the program. I want to also mention, too, that uh, we normally take your calls, but we won't be taking calls today because this program uh, is Uh, pre-recorded. But in doing so, we want to kind of give you the opportunity to kind of maybe text a friend, tell him this program is going to be available. Um, I think it's an important conversation, and I want to say I really like uh, Dr. Yancey's path forward in a time when there's a lot of gridlock about some of these conversations, people are unsure how best to respond. Some people are uh, are responding by saying, well, this is something that undergirds every Racism is something that undergirds everything we have, are and do in society in the West and in our nation, in the United States and more. Um, where others might be saying, well, I don't know, there's, you know, there's a, a, there's a really an issue to discuss. And so we're going to have that conversation today and with a person who's really been thinking deeply on this issue. I should tell you, too, by the way, he's got lots of other resources as well. And I want to encourage you to um, to take a look. For example, he's got some really helpful things on anti-Christian sentiment in America. Um, so you can go to EdStetzerLive.com. We've listed a link to all of his books there, uh, all of his resources and books there uh, as well. So, George Yancey, thanks for joining us on the program to talk about this important topic.
1: Thanks for having me, As. Sure, appreciate it. Well,
0: glad to do it. Glad to do it. Okay, so um, it seems that there's um, kind of a couple of ways that people are maybe trying. Not because more than a couple of ways, but sometimes people will quote, "We should just live a live in a colorblind society," and um, and that's that's not an uncommon thing for people to say. They might even quote Martin Luther King Jr. to be judged by the. Not the color of our skin, but the content of our character. And that is often used as a phrase to advocate color blindness. And then on the other side, people might say we need to be uh, anti-racist is a language that's sometimes used to, you know, to be consistently working against dismantle systems that sometimes people might say are just inherent in the system, that it's built on racism and more. You make the case that um, those paths don't work. Tell us more and why.
1: Yeah, so neither one really works, and the, the the really central core to that is that both of them are paths where a certain group of people have figured out a solution, and they're trying to implement it on everyone else, and the solution is incomplete for different reasons. It's incomplete on, on colorblindness and anti-racism, but it is incomplete, and so you can get resistance from these solutions, and then rather than lessening racial tension, oftentimes the pushing of these solutions increase racial tension. So what we need is a solution where we're not dictating to people where to go, but we're working together to find our path forward together.
0: Yeah, okay, so talk to us about that. Because one of the things, I mean, the the language that you use is – Mutual accountability, and I really, again, I, I just want to say, folks, I have found uh, Dr. Yancey's resources really helpful here, and I want to encourage people to pick up Beyond Racial Gridlock. Um, but, but so how does mutual accountability, what does that look like? I mean, that sounds very, I mean, we want to be accountable, but how would we be accountable? Because a lot of people don't even want to have these conversations.
1: Sure. Uh, before we go on, my newest book is Beyond Racial Division. The gridlock was the one. Oh, I, I'm Johnson's sorry. State. You're
0: right. You're right, and I apologize. I, I have because I, I, <laughs> I, I actually know, I have Beyond too. Racial Gridlock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you, if you use you yeah. similarly named books, you know, but it's Beyond Racial Division, a unifying yeah. alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. My apologies. Yeah,
1: you can blame you can blame my publisher for that one. They they, they, they like the theme, <laughs> so they said let's do that. So it's, a the it's a great theme. It's a great theme in
0: books,
1: but not because they have disadvantage of that. But anyways. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, all right, so collaborative conversations or mutual accountability, Here, here's, where, here's where, where I say mutual. We all mutually have responsibility to facilitate a productive conversation with each other. That does not mean our solutions will wind up being mutual. They might be, but they may, may well not be given our history. But we have to come into this conversation both willing to speak to people in a way they can hear and willing to hear people out so we can find solutions that bring people in. I just wonder how many times people have thought, well, when you're dictating the solution to me, have you thought about other people who might be adversely affected by your solution? And a lot of times the answer, honestly, is no. we got to have solutions that are win-win, not win-lose. If we want to move forward and stop all the polarization that we see in our society.
0: Yeah. So... So then, the mutual accountability, so so what would I mean again, we actually had a group of pastors read uh, Beyond Racial Gridlock, which is your last book. and we read yeah. together, um, this was in summer 2020, had conversations and led to led to those kind of mutual accountability conversations. It felt like, just to be honest george, that that a lot of these paths just led to we were kind of a hopelessness, we were unsure what we should do or we shouldn't do. And your conversations gave us a path forward. So we had accountable conversations with one another. So talk to me what that looked like. You know, let's, let's say a Christian's listening and like, okay, I, I would like that. I would like to move beyond racial division. What would that look like? How could people have those kinds of mutual accountability conversations?
1: Okay. Well, let me just use a hypothetical example. No, I, I, I'm not saying that I've seen this actually happen in a church. But let me use a hypothetical example. Let's say a church that started attracting, in, let's say it's a predominantly white church, start attracting in a lot of Hispanics. And the Hispanics start complaining about the worship service because they don't feel like they're represented. Well, now you have two groups that are interested. You know, you have the dominant, mostly white group, who's interested in what the service looks like, and the Hispanic group. Both of them have interest in what, what they should do. Now, the solution is not for one group to say, well, you guys just have to tough it out, and this is the way we want the worship service to be. The solution I see it as would be having people from both groups sitting down, and some people saying, "Well, here's why the service means something to me as a Hispanic person, and here's why it's something to me as a European American." So, what can we, what, how can we change the service that serves both groups, so that the things that are missing that might serve those Hispanics, you know, it can be brought into the service, as well as the things that some of the people the majority group need together. It won't look exactly like what the people in the majority group want or what the people in the minority group want, but my guess is you'll get a better service for that will reach a lot more people. Now, you can see this problem, you can see this in a lot of other problems. What sort of curriculum that the church used? What sort of political issues the church can become involved in? What sort of uh, ways in which they're going to be teaching their, their kids? uh what well, sort of mission trips are going to get involved in. A church that I think is, does this will become a church that begins to change itself to meet multiple needs of many people. Can this go beyond the church? I believe it can. I believe we can look at how we try to solve our racial problems in general in our society. Problems such as, you know, what are we going to do with, uh, with with schools uh, as far as what are we going to teach kids in schools as far as diversity? What are we going to do with, with police and the community, how are we going to handle those sort of issues? What are we going to do in our criminal justice system? I think there's a lot of issues that we can address in, in a more productive way. The way we address it today is one group starts protesting, another starts, group starts protesting, and whoever wins politically gets to say what's done. To me, that's just going to set up a cycle of protesting, counter protesting, and more fighting rather than pulling together. So that's a, a, a more practical way I, I can see how this could play itself out. Now, it takes a lot of skills and we have to learn how to talk to each other, how to listen to one another. So it isn't just going to happen just because we want it to happen. It will happen because we work at it happening together.
0: Yeah, I, I, I again, I, I really like very much so. The like I said, we actually read, um, uh, read books together, read these books together, and and um, I, I'm a little bit um, probably. Probably discouraged to the degree that some of these conversations are going to have in our culture. Um, you know, it seems that we're going uh, the wrong direction on how to have conversations about race. Um, and again, this is part of your point. And again, the book is beyond racial division: a unifying alternative to color blindness and anti-racism. So it, it seems that um, you know people have increasingly parents. We saw in this in uh, you know elections recently that you know critical race theory. You know, we want people. You know who candidates who will ban critical race theory and and then uh, other people said, "Well, does that mean we're not going to teach history? We saw news saying that you know books are you know to tell historical examples of you know racism, you know being there's something we can't use and so it it seems to me that rather than moving forward, we're actually. As you said, we're we're kind of you know winner takes all. So the elections go back and forth, and the things go back and forth. Um, But I think both sides sort of you know sort of want that in some ways. It gives us a battle cry, and you're sort of I don't know standing athwart the battle and saying we need a different approach. So do you? I mean, what are you? Do you have hope here? Is this something? I mean, you're writing a book that. I found very helpful and, you know, very, found very helpful to even use in churches. But what does that mean for our culture? What, what are the next, I mean, look into your crystal ball. What does the next few years look like on some of these issues?
1: Yeah, I understand where your discouragement comes from because I felt similarly discouraged uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be honest, the, the, the forces that support colorblindness and the forces that support anti-racism are very powerful and it's in their interests to keep the fight going because they can gain resources that way. Mm -hmm. So in the short term, I I understand your discouragement. My hope and my prayer is in the long term, more and more people will tire from the fight and want real solutions where we work together. Mm -hmm. And as that occurs, and as, as people like myself and others start pushing for that, that we'll be there to take advantage of that. What gives me some encouragement is that as I look at surveys, I think most people in the country don't fully subscribe to either colorblindness or anti-racism, mm-hmm. and they're open to a new way. So I think that, in a sense, people like me or you outnumber the others. It's just that we don't get on the talk shows, and we don't, other than this one, of course, uh, <laughs> but we don't get into the, into the major talk shows, and, and so they, they get people who are more extremists to shout at each other, because that's good entertainment. Mm-hmm we got to keep pushing though, so that we can get our voices out there. Because I think there's more people who are with us than against us.
0: Yeah, okay, we're gonna continue our conversation with Dr. George Yancey. Um, he's at the Baylor ISR Institute of Study Religion. Um, and when I wanna talk, we could probably define some of those things more about colorblindness and anti-racism, because those might not be terms people are familiar with, but I'm guessing as we describe and define them, they will be things with which you are familiar. So we're gonna continue our conversation with Dr. George Yancey um, in just a moment in here on Setzer Live. Thanks for listening. Politics brings more division than ever, and social media is moving many to be less social and more critical. Those with Christian views are also often being dismissed. Well, What if the rise of secularism, though, is good news for the church? Throughout history, these times of decline traditionally precede powerful spiritual renewal, even revival. You need to read Mark Sayers' book, Reappearing Church, The Hopeful Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. Get a copy of Reappearing Church today at MoodyPublishers.com. Hey, we're back. Um, We're talking to George Yancey, who's written a helpful book, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and anti-racism uh we are not taking your calls today because this is a pre-recorded show but i think you'll find our conversation super helpful i want to encourage you to as always go to ed to find all the resources um we've got uh, his uh dr yancy's past books as well um, and other resources linked there and as always you can subscribe to this as a podcast so if you're not listening on a saturday morning you can listen when or saturday afternoon depending on where you listened. you can listen anytime you want when you subscribe to the podcast. The the book is again called Beyond Racial Division, a Unifying Alternative. And then there are two words that probably are worth us defining: colorblindness and anti-racism. Because George, you're actually contrasting your approach to colorblindness and anti-racism. But colorblindness sounds like a good thing to many people. Anti-racism sounds like a good thing. So those words are actually positive words to a lot of people. We 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 want our hiring to maybe be colorblind. We want our Posture to maybe be anti-racist, but so explain to us what that means when you talk about because both of those represent a whole set of ideas. So talk us through colorblindness then anti-racism.
1: Yeah, and you know there are times in which I think colorblindness and anti-racism are totally appropriate. For example, when when I grade my students' test, I don't try to figure out their race because I'm not going to influence. That's not going to influence my grade. I don't want to influence my grade. So there is a time colorblindness as you might well imagine is the idea that the best way to deal with race is to ignore race if we just treat everyone the same and ignore race then that's that's good you know that's 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 the solution to racism now the problem with colorblindness from the point of view of a person of color is that it it makes sense if our society is fair where society is largely fair then we can ignore race because everything is fair but if it's not fair then ignoring race means that the, the problems in our society continue to go on because no one's going to pay attention to them, it's sort of like the alcoholic. If someone's an alcoholic, you don't ignore the fact that he or she's an alcoholic or else the problems go away. What we know from a lot of research, a lot of research, is that our society still treats people differently based on race. And I can give a couple of examples that people want. For example, we know that if you're an African American or Hispanic American, you apply for a job. You're less likely, all other things being equal, to get called back for an interview. There's there's studies that have done this, what they call audit studies, and they've shown this again and again and again, and it's not decreasing that type of discrimination. Uh, and just another one, just a quick one. We know that driving them all black is a real thing. Driving them all black is that you're an African American, you're more likely to be pulled over, all other things being equal. There's a lot of evidence. Okay, So society is not fair, and to be colorblind is to ignore the problems of our current society and the problems that historically have developed because of our, our racism in the past, our, our centuries of racial abuse. And that's why colorblindness ultimately fails. Anti-racism is a little bit more complicated, but it, it does offer us some insight. Uh, when I read anti-racism books, which I did for this, my last book, I read the pop anti-racism book and three major things came out at me. One, that racism is something that we must be intentionally dealing with. We can't just wait for it to see racism. We have to seek it out and try to stop it. Two, racism is multifaceted. It's not just about an individual racist. It's also about institutions and structures. Those first two points I agree with. It's the third point that I think is problematic. And once again, I found this in just about every anti-racism book I I saw or some version of this third point. The third point is that the role of whites is to do what people of color tell them to do. Now, people don't actually say that, but they say it without saying it. For example, D'Angelo, the role of whites is to deny their own racial identity, to listen to people of color, and basically support them. I mean, that really is in her writing.
0: Uh, Kindy, yeah, let me let me let me help know, that. We gotta say D'Angelo. So D'Angelo wrote "White Fragility" I'm and sorry, other things yes. as well. So, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just to explain yeah, who I, she I is. Say,
1: yeah. I should say the names of the books rather than the authors. Right. Yeah. So "White right. Fragility" right. or "How to Be an Anti-Racist."
0: Right. You
1: know that you know he has a certain uh, philosophy, and the role of whites is to abide by that philosophy, uh, abide by the re- reforms he wants. Uh, me and white supremacy. The role of whites is to support financial support, people of color, and, and to not take leadership roles. So again, and again, and again, what you see is whites are not to really interject their own ideas. They're just to do what people of color tell them to do. And that's very problematic. Because if we believe in human depravity, human depravity is not limited to white people. Human depravity is something that we all struggle with. And if I was white, I would not feel comfortable, even, if, even given our history of racial abuse, to merely have to do what other people tell me what to do, I want to have a say in that. I'm not saying that I should have the only say, but i want to have a say in what what goes on. So yeah, that the ultimately human failed, and there's a lot, a lot of
0: research. To, the, yeah. Okay. So so by the way, I should mention too. I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. You're good. So so Dr. Yancey is uh, he's actually he's, he he you just mentioned human depravity. So probably I'm saying okay, Dr. Yancey's a Christian. He has written on actually. Um, uh, hostile environment, understanding and responding to anti-Christian bias. Um, he's written, uh, you know, things on this. This has been an area of research for him. I actually started engaging with your work at that time, and then, uh, you know, and, and reading some of your research because I was doing research around some of similar issues. So, so then a lot of a lot of people are concerned and about critical race theory, which you touch on. Um, and how does that relate to anti-racism?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because when I was writing the book, critical race theory wasn't even out there. No one's even paying attention right. to it. I mean, it's been there, but no one's paying attention to it. So I really didn't mention it. I would say it's like this. I think anti-racism is a derivative of critical race theory. There is not – you can could, you could do critical race theory and not do anti-racism. I think that's possible, unlikely, but possible. And so you can't say that anti-racism is critical race theory, but anti-racism, the, the efforts of anti-racism – Make perfect sense if you if you accept and buy into the dictates of quick race theory. So that's how I would sort of see the relationship between the two concepts.
0: Okay, that's helpful. So um, we think I mean I guess probably you mentioned D'Angelo. Another famous name would be Ibram uh, Kendi. Uh, Kindy and uh, writes about anti-racism. So so um, so those and this is really key because, I mean, we would use words like colorblindness and anti-racism, but there's whole kind of sets of ideas that sort of come around them. So um, now you're a person of faith. You're a Christian. um, Mm -hmm. Yet your prescriptions here actually could be engaged by non-Christians. I, I wish I wish they would. So where does this fit with the Christian message? And then I want to talk about how it might fit in the secular conversation. So how is this uniquely Christian? Then we'll talk about how it's not, how, how it also could be engaged in a culture that's not particularly Christian.
1: Sure. So here's why I think that this resonates with the Christian message. Because, and I, I try to go into this book, you know, if you look at the Enlightenment movement. The Limean movement was really, among other things, in a movement towards human perfectibility, that we're going to create a perfect society, that we humans have the ability. We've evolved. We're the, we're the highest evolved creatures. We have the abilities. We have our reason. And we can create the best community. Uh, that is not a Christian approach, because Christians talk about human depravity, that, we yeah, we have reason, but we also have biases. We also have our selfishness. And we will tend to create communities that serve us and our people at the expense of others. So if you believe that you can create the best community, you believe you have the answers, and that answer may be colorblindness, and that answer may be anti-racism, then your task is to convince everyone else to accept that answer and to to squash any of the any of the objections to that answer. Your, your task is to get everyone to be colorblind or to get everyone to accept anti-racism. If you believe in human depravity of everybody, not just people outside your group, but people in your group, then you would be a little bit more humble about that. And you would believe in your answers, but also acknowledge that you could be wrong. And what you need to do is talk to other people and to try to find better answers, listen to their concerns, and try to incorporate that into your conversation. So human depravity leads to an approach of dialogue, of, of what I call a collaborative conversation, a goal-oriented conversation. And this is why I see this as a Christian-based approach. Now, to sort of build on what you've also asked, can non-Christians do this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the parallel I like to think about is forgiveness. I think forgiveness is a key element of Christian faith because we need forgiveness, right, because because we understand our failings and we need to be forgiven from God and we need to forgive others because we understand we all fail. Non-Christians can also forgive, too. And research has shown that forgiveness is an important component to a person's mental health. So while we can be inspired to forgiveness for, through our Christian faith, this does not mean that a non-Christian can similarly engage in forgiveness and benefit from the from, from the fruits of forgiveness. Likewise, I think that a non-Christian, someone who's not of the faith, can benefit from pushing a collaborative conversation because the, the core of the collaborative conversation is rooted in the nature of who humans are. And who humans are is someone who is born in depravity and needs that sort of dialogue with the others.
0: Now, if the word depravity is unfamiliar to you, that, that is to, to our listeners. So that's the idea that we're all just sinners. And so as sinners, it's it impacts everything, all of our being, and more. And so so then we can assume that people would make bad, wrong choices, even with how they might engage with other people, people of other backgrounds, ethnicities, races, uh, and more. So we we got about a minute in this segment. So tell me what let's say you're of course you're African American, I'm Anglo White. Um, what would it look like if you and I were having a collaborative conversation? Give me a one minute introduction and then we'll continue on the other side.
1: Sure. So I would engage in a process of active listening. i would try to understand where you're coming from, and I try to put it in my own words so that I know precisely where you're coming from. And likewise, you would do the same with me. That you would hear me out and then you would you would engage in a process of, okay, here's who I hear you saying, and then you put in your own words. And then I would say, yes, you have it, or no, you don't. And then once we understand where we're coming from, we try to see, if I can figure out a solution that would meet some of your needs, maybe all your needs, that still meet my needs, then you would try to do the same, so we come closer to a solution, closer to a compromise that we can live with. Uh, If we're engaged in this conversation, try to solve a problem between us. It's not a bad technique, one may consider, uh, if you're married, to use with your spouse. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, maybe we should do that more often. Maybe we have better marriages and you know,
0: yeah, for but, sure. You know, that sort of conversation I wanna, I,
1: is what we need.
0: Yeah, I want to continue this conversation on the other side with George Yancy. We'll continue in just a moment. All right, we're back. We're having a, uh, a really fascinating conversation with George Yancey. Uh, he's actually written a series, of several books, and, and with his research and more. And you can actually go to EdSetzerLive.com. They're all linked right there. Um, his books include, um, you know, the One Faith No Longer: The Transformation of Christianity in Red and Blue America, uh, There Is No God: Atheists in America, Host- uh, Hostile Environment: Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias, uh, Beyond Racial Gridlock: uh, Beyond Racial Division and Transcending Racial Barriers. Lots of Helpful resources. He is, serves at the Institute for the Study of Religion at Baylor University as a PhD from the University of Texas, and we're super glad to have him, Dr. Yancey, on the program today. We are not taking your calls because we're not live. I think this has been a fascinating and lively conversation, but we're going to have that fascinating and lively conversation. This is a pre-recorded um, episode as well. Okay, so one of the things that in these, you know, these conversations, these constructive conversations that you're talking about, is that. um in the world in which we live today, that's very driven by social media. You know, I'm 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 Anglo white, whatever term you want to use. I'm of, of Irish descent, and so if I talk about maybe like even on this radio program, and I I would say I believe, for example, that systemic racism, uh, Israel still exists in some places. Some places the past is projected into the present, and I see those implications here. I will get from people uh, maybe on social media or whatever. Uh, a video maybe a uh, an article but mostly a video that would be perhaps somebody who's African American it usually tends to be same four or five six folks um who maybe someone's African American who and they'll say look this person says that's not the case and it can be very easy for me to say well I want to listen to that person because that person you know might support what I think so how do we end up um hearing maybe more broadly I don't know what's the best I I, I don't you know I don't think one african Americans speaks for all African-Americans. So how do we have those things where people might have strong opinions, but they're not representative of maybe other people's opinions?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to be very careful about that. I mean, I clearly do not re- represent all African-Americans. Uh, many African-Americans disagree with me and, and that's fine. And being an African-American is part of who I am, but it's not all of who I am. So it's not the only thing that shapes my opinion. And I think that's true for all of us. There's multiple social identities that help shape our opinion. And it's perfectly fine to listen to African Americans and to know that 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 being black helped to give that person an opinion, but that's not the only opinion out there. And, and so I, I think I'd be very careful and what we tend to do. And, and by the way, everyone does this on all sides of these issues is that they'll find the people like you probably have some non-Christian friends who, when they want to argue you, they find a Christian who says what they want and then they give you that video and C, a CCC. So, you know, we all do this to some degree on all sides of issues is we find someone who says what we like and then we use that as, as as the key. So when it comes to an issue such as institutional discrimination or racism or, or that sort of thing, I would look at evidence rather than a person's opinion. Now, you can look at people's opinions for certain things and that's useful, but there's all sorts of evidence, like I said before, on how people of color are treated differently in our society. And to me, that's much more convincing than putting some person up there who has an opinion about whether or not systematic racism exists. Rather, I would rather look at the evidence on whether systematic or rather not whether institutional racism exists. And and that's where I would go with that. But, yeah, mm-hmm. any one person. And I know the counter to that, people will say, well, look at all the other people who disagree with that person. So let's, you know, I would, I would shy away from posting someone who's Black and saying, all right, here, this per- Black person said it, therefore it must be true.
0: Right, that's helpful. So it's not, so we we might listen to others and people do have different experiences. And, you know, one of the things that I have found very helpful is to sometimes host conversations. And, you know, I know that everyone can host conversations, I get that. But to uh, host conversations where, particularly with pastors or, you know, uh, fellow evangelicals is a term I'd use to describe uh, my theological beliefs, and fellow evangelicals who may be you know, Latino or African American or Asian and they might say well you know I experienced this differently and and I find out well wait a second we're not maybe living in the same world sometimes and, and that seems to be for a lot of people that's when a light goes on for them it's like well wait a second so they're experiencing some of these things differently than I am so how does that help us I mean that's a part of what you write about is helping people to see from somebody else's perspective how does that help us?
1: Yeah, I think the more we talk to other people who are not of our group and learn from the perspective, the better picture we get. Because, you know, you don't want to talk to one or two people because they could be anomalies. But if we start talking and we develop the, the friendships, our social networks that's integrated enough, and we can start hearing from people and, and we can understand their experiences and be better able to to know how we can minister them, how we can – treat them in a better way. So I think that's a very valuable uh, uh, thing to do. One thing that I suggest, though, and I tell the story in my book, is to be willing to have the conversation. Because when I was when I was in college, my best friend was a white guy. And we talked about everything but racial issues, literally everything yeah. but racial issues. And yet I was experiencing racism at that time, because I remember confining into another guy who's not my best friend, but he's a Hispanic. So I put the blame on myself for not having been willing to, to approach him with that conversation. I don't put the blame on him. He didn't do anything about it. I was the one who did not initiate those conversations. And so we have to initiate those conversations with people that we've developed a trust with and have them so that we can gain insight and also share our story with others.
0: Now, no, you know, initiating those conversations. Um, there's a whole lot of people who don't want to have these conversations. I mean, it's these are mm-hmm. uncomfortable conversations, and one of the things that um, I wish one of the one of our board members at Moody Bible Institute, James Meeks, um, he's a dear friend. He's actually a student at our Wheaton College Graduate School in our program that I had the privilege of leading, uh, but well-known African American leader here in Chicago. Again, I nice mentioned on the board of Moody Bible Institute, Moody Radio, and um, one of the things he said is that, to me, he said, well, you know, you it's kind of a luxury whether or not you engage in conversations about, for example, race. He said, it's not really a luxury for me. I mean, this is my live to, my existence. I have conversations about these things. So how do we help people to even want to have those conversations, particularly people in majority culture like me? You
1: know, to have these conversations is going to help us to uh, to deal better with these racial issues, and I think that even those from the majority culture, uh, I hope are starting to see that that we we can't uh, put it underneath the rug, put so it underneath the rug and hope it goes away. That uh, if we're going to have more racial incidents, we're going to have to be able to deal with them. We want to understand where our people of different races are coming from, and we want to solve problems. If we don't have those conversations, then our problems get solved by whoever, whoever has the biggest political stick and whoever can, can beat the other person down to submission. So for me, uh, what I would say to, the, to those in the majority, that these issues don't go away because you refuse to have the conversation. And I understand it's an uncomfortable conversation. And I'm not saying just go up to any, uh, any person of color. Develop friendships first. By all means, develop those friendships first. Develop some sort of level of trust with each other. Uh, and and if you do that, then the conversation becomes a little bit easier. But most people of color are going to be honest with you. And as they're, as they're honest with you, it's got, there's going to be some, some uncomfortable things being said. And for some people of color, they don't want the conversation either. So it's not, you know, one way or the other. And we, we have to hear these uncomfortable things if we're going to get we're going to understand where people are coming from so that we can find solutions that work rather than just plan on how we can beat people down so that we can get what we want politically or socially in our society.
0: Yeah. And I I think, I think um, that's a big part of how to have that conversation because some people are, are nervous. Well, you know, what if I say the wrong thing? You know, I I, do, do I have to be an expert on, on everything? You know, do, do I, if I, if I, talk about critical race theory and I don't know about it. What does that mean for me? If I, if I don't even at the beginning of the show, if I didn't know what colorblindness was, I, you know, if colorblindness, I think is, is a good thing, but you're telling me that there's some concerns with that. So how do I know what I know? And again, you can be very nervous. You don't want to be accused of, or be said, well, that's, you know, what you said was racist. Um, now you talk some about the relationship. So I want to continue our conversation in just a moment with George Yancey. We're talking about um, his, his new book. It's actually uh, helping us to understand some of these issues of how best to walk through issues of, of racial division, beyond racial division. And we'll continue our conversation with George Yancey in just a moment. Hey, we're we're back. We're talking to George Yancy. We're talking about his uh, his, his new book is actually called Beyond Racial Division, a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. Uh, He's actually written before about this, a book I engage pretty widely, um, called Beyond Racial Gridlock, uh, and lots of other resources, too. I want to encourage you to uh, go to edsetzerlive.com. You'll see all that there. Let me remind you that we are actually um, not live, so we're not taking your calls, but we're having, I think, a super helpful conversation that I have the privilege of asking the questions today. Um, Okay, so that being said, so we kind of ended the last segment, uh, George. One of the things I think a lot of people are like, if I have this conversation and I say the wrong thing, there could be ramifications for me. People could misunderstand and maybe tell other people that I wasn't, you know, this or that. So how do we have a conversation in a place of trust in these kinds of difficult conversations?
1: You know, we are going to have to try to give each other a little bit of grace in these conversations. And I think that's been in short supply in our larger society, that we know that if someone says the wrong thing, that, you know, there's the threat of cancelization and there's you know, and all this sort of stuff. And so I think that as we have more conversations and we both make mistakes and everyone starts making mistakes, hopefully we'll develop more grace, but that is going to be part of it. Uh, this is why we have to, to develop a, develop the friendships where we can trust one another. And ideally, we, uh, on the individual level, we have these conversations with people in our social networks that we've developed some level of trust that have goodwill good towards each other because we care about each other in a more structural sense, we may have to sort of institutionalize that level of trust because if we're trying to solve problems and we're bringing say, community leaders together with people from the police force, they don't have that sort of trust and so we have to figure that out. Uh, uh, what I would uh, try to do uh, is to try to have people enunciate their perspectives and have another side listen to that and then try to articulate what they hear, because I think that's a little bit clinical, but it, I think it takes away some of, the, some of the edge of, I might say the wrong thing, because all I'm trying to say is what I hear you saying, and when someone is enunciating their perspective, we've got to give them the grace to enunciate how they truly feel, and it may, always, it may be sometimes be uncomfortable. And that may be a way to start before we actually get into a discussion on what we should do, and that way we understand each other a little bit better. Uh, yeah. One final thing. And that's is, where you. You know, if go someone go makes a mistake, oh, go ahead. Oh, if someone makes a but, mistake, rather than try to jump on a mistake, try to explain why it's a mistake and, and help mm-hmm. them, help them to say, okay, I see where I, where I said it could be offensive, and I don't want to do that again. And then let it go, because you know, why be keep people beating people up unless you just want to beat people up? And I, mm-hmm. I would ask people to try to do that.
0: Yeah. And that may not be the conversation you want to have on a, you know, a YouTube channel. That may be a conversation you're having with, you're, you're no. learning, you're learning and having those conversations. Because again, I, I do think that, I mean, because we've, we've actually seen some people try to, I, mean, I think, well-meaning people who who just stepped into things that were where maybe they didn't articulate something well. And so, but again, most of our listeners are not doing that. You know, they're not having conversations on, you know, a YouTube channel or a TV station or whatever. But but I, but I do think that um, that you're, you keep coming back to this idea, and you mentioned that this might be something you have to do with your, your spouse, where you articulate back to them what you hear. And you mentioned that, I think, a couple of segments ago. Could you kind of walk through that again? Because that's a helpful tool for for everybody, but particularly in these kinds of conversations.
1: Yeah, so you know it's called active listening. So listen for comprehension. You're not arguing. It's what I use when I do qualitative research. And so I'll hear I'll, I'll hear what people say, and then what I try to do is I try to articulate in my own words what they're what they're saying. And then when I do that, then they can either say yes, you understand where I'm coming from, or no, here's what you've missed. If I do this enough, eventually I'll articulate their perspective in a way that they can. They say yes that is what I am saying and then I I, I know what they're saying and the purpose of that is not that I agree with them but I at least understand what they're actually concerned about so that if I critique them I'm actually critiquing what they actually said and not some caricature of what they've said
0: yeah okay so so that helps us to have the better kind of conversation um, so, and what about informing ourselves in that process? Now, I, again, I want to encourage people to to get a copy of your book, which I think will help with that. But the uh, again, the the title uh, of the book and it points us to the theme, right? It's it's beyond racial division, a unifying alternative to colorblindness yes. and anti racism. What, how might someone prepare? Say, I want to know more about this. I'm going to get I'm going to get George Yancey's book, Beyond Racial Division. But what are some other ways they might prepare for some of these conversations?
1: You know the. If you want to learn about other people that are coming from and, and not get the conversation directly, a lot of times we can just read the materials that they're, that they're uh, writing about, uh, or read comments that they've made, or read comments in sections, uh, according to articles, because some, some of the comments, obviously, are, are just exaggerations and way out of balance, but sometimes you can listen or, or read what you are saying and understand some of their ideas, where they're coming from. Uh, mm-hmm. So those are some ways in which we can understand people. I also would uh, look at uh, trying – if you want to read more about communications, uh, there may be some materials in, in communications literature that might be helpful. I know that okay. I have some friends who do something called cultural intelligence, which talks yeah. about communication styles. So that's that's worth looking into, I think, if you want to understand why people may say certain things certain ways and not mean the way that we would mean if we had said it. So yeah. that could be of helpful as well, and so those are some things that we could do to prepare us for our conversation, if we want yeah, to engage in smart. the sort of conversations with others.
0: Yes, we have those same mutual friends in cultural intelligence, Mark Demas, and some others. So I, I, there, there's mm-hmm. some good conversations around some of that. Um, so as we look at the future of, um, you know, we we live in a country that's increasing, you know, and again, it's not we're not the '60s where you know it's with civil rights movement things of that sort. Um, but our views of how best to handle uh, racial division seem to be diverging from one another. So, are you? And again, that's why. That's why I think. And again, I'm. I'm just here in front of all my audience, encouraging them to pick up your your books on this topic because I, I find them really helpful, um, and I actually recommend them widely. But um, so, are, are you? Are you hopeful? Are you? Are you seeing people? Growing, uh, maybe I'm speaking hope that they're growing weary of shouting past one another, or is it just maybe we're at the beginning and we are shouting past one another? Where 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 do you see us going in the future as a nation?
1: I think we're more at the beginning than anything else, and I think there are okay. people who are tired of it, but they've not had a voice articulating it that that gets okay. you know into the media, the mainstream there are other groups that are trying to do something similar to what I'm doing. So I'm not the only one doing it. So praise God for that. But I don't think there's enough people who are trying to do it this way, do this approach. And I think, like I said, I think the majority of people will prefer an approach like this, but we're going to have to uh, engage in it enough so that those on, on the fringes start to pay attention that there's a movement about having a, a more productive conversation than merely trying to force there's a particular agenda on on everyone. But that's going to take some time. So I'm hopeful that in time we can do that, but I'm not hopeful in the short term. I think in the short term, we're going to have a lot of struggles.
0: Yeah, me too. You, I, I remember when I had you, I think it was on the podcast. I don't think it was on this program, but I had you on the podcast. We were talking about your your earlier book about racial division, uh, Gridlock. And you. <laughs> I said, where's this working? And you said, you know, we got a long way to go. You kind of indicated that this is But this is the kind of thing that gives me some hope is we can have, again, originally in the Beyond Beyond Racial Gridlock, that book was 2006, uh, embracing mutual responsibility. So about a minute left. What is the listener's responsibility, right? What do we have? What would you exhort us to consider and take responsibility for in about a minute we have left?
1: Well, at this point, what I would ask the listener is to uh, just start thinking about some of these ideas and start thinking about how they might contribute towards having a better conversation or encouraging that. Uh, you know, I'm trying to form some organizations to aid in that. Uh, out of the program at Baylor I'm trying to work on, but for the individual at this point to try to encourage better conversations and to not buy into uh, some of the hyperbole that's going on, that unfortunately. It shuts down conversations rather than encourage conversations so that we can put pressure on people to stop that, instead engage in a mutual collaborative approach.
0: Yeah, that just seems it's it seems so Christian, but it's also so necessary for the future of, I I think, our nation and our nation has unique challenges. Others have different challenges. Uh, But thank you so much, George Jancy, for joining us on the program. And let me thank our team behind the scenes here at Moody Radio, my producer, Karen Hendren engineer Courtney Young and Eric Tidwell. Well, I would say Eric Tidwell is on the phones, but we didn't take the phones today, but Eric still Tidwell still does, does a great job when he's on the phones. Uh, remember to t- today, hear today's program again. You'll find it at edstetzerlive.com or on the Moody Radio app. And you can actually subscribe to this as a podcast, all of our programs as podcasts. We're more interested in content than if you're not necessarily tuning your dial to your radio at that moment. You can also connect with us through social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where all of those are at edstetzerlive. And, um, and again, this an important issue, and I really want to encourage you again to pick up George Yancey's book, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. Thanks for listening to Ed Stetzer Live. I remind you that Ed Stetzer Live is a production of Moody Radio, which is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.